You're listening to Jimmy Pizarro from City Lights Church. The first thing that comes to mind when I think of brotherhood and sisterhood, I only have one brother. He's six years older than me. Um, but I think of competition and sibling rivalries. Like that's the first thing I think about when it, when it comes to brotherhood and sisterhood. So I'm going to share with you a story. I've shared this with the youth before. Our first event was a mini golf event with the youth group, and I have a mini golf story. <clears throat> so me and my brother and family went to this place called Peak. It's in Pennsylvania. I don't know where. I was six years old when we went, but it exists. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Um, we were there on a short weekend vacation, and to end the weekend, my mom decided to take us mini-golfing, and uh, my grandparents were there. It was my mom, my brother, and me, and even though I was six, and that makes him 12, he was six years older than me, he kept score, um, probably because I, I couldn't at that time. It would have been difficult, but <clears throat> we played, and uh, it didn't go as well as I was hoping, for a number of reasons. One, because I probably would have lost anyway, but every hole we would, you know, we would golf, and who knows how long it took. But my brother would joke about either writing down that he got a hole-in-one or, like, he would change the score, and he was, like, doing that on every hole. And so I was just progressively getting more annoyed, and my mom was starting to see that and was trying to quiet us down, but it just wasn't working and we finally got to one hole where I just broke. I had a lapse of, of a, I don't know, emotional outburst. It's just completely out of character when I'm competing. It's really, I don't know where it came from at all. Um, but anyway, he basically made the joke again, and I don't know what came over me, but I took my mini golf club, and I just whacked him with it on the arm. Game over. I have no idea why. I just know there was a lot of crying. I was crying. He was crying. My mom was yelling. We walked to the car. And we'll never know. We'll never know who would have won. I don't think we've played mini golf since. But competition is a part of life. And uh, when it comes to being competing, though, in, in the, the body of Christ, I don't think it, it comes in the same fashion. Like, sure, there's church softball or game nights or who can uh, make the best candy apple, dipped candy apple, which I was not invited to, which is fine. I did sign up, but things came up. Anyway, that type of competition really doesn't matter probably in the perspective of eternity, but there are things that do, and I think there's enough grounds for uh, us to talk about it in scripture and see what competition leads to. And I'm going to say right off the bat that I don't think competition is the problem. I think it's things that it leads to. So you might be familiar with this story in Scripture. There's two brothers, James and John, in the New Testament. And they come to Jesus and they say, Hey, Jesus, um, in the kingdom of God, when you're reigning on the earth, can we sit at your right and left hand? Um, is anyone familiar with this story? Okay, so they come to him and uh, Jesus you know, gives them gives him basically how the rundown. He says, you know, that's not for me to decide. That's for my Father in heaven to decide. And uh, even though Jesus is God, you know, he makes that statement. But the other disciples overhear it, and they're, like, upset with James and John because, like, you know, Jesus only has so many hands, you know. He can only sit on two different sides of them. So they're upset, and uh, they, they, they get into an argument. Um, and in the Gospel of Mark, where the uh, the disciples are never really portrayed that well. 
um, you see that this isn't the first time they've had this argument, but they get into an argument about who the greatest is, right? So I don't know how many of us in church have had that argument, but it's interesting because we really don't see them, at least in the Gospel of Mark, doing that many great things. They're pretty embarrassing. (laughs) But anyway, they argue about it. And Jesus tells them this. He's like, those of you who desire to be the greatest must make themselves a servant of all. Right? That sounds pretty difficult. I have to serve everybody. Now, some of us who want to take the path of least resistance would hear that. Oh, you have to be a servant of all. And you would probably say, you know what? Being the greatest, uh, I, can, I can be like somewhere in the middle as long as I don't have to serve everybody. You know, you would just automatically decide being greatest isn't that important because I don't want to be a servant. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul, when he writes in his epistles, he refers to himself as a servant more than he does as a son. And I think the reason why he does that is because he understands this thing called family. He understands this thing called church. When you're a brother and sister in the body of Christ, there's a good chance Although we we sing about God being a good father and though we get to participate in all the benefits of being saved and believing in Jesus and, and pouring out love, though we get to experience all that, there's a good portion of what we're called to do that we really don't want to do. Like being a brother is a perfect example of that and I'll share that in a second, but some of the things that we do in the family of God that we don't want to do, it could, it could look like this. It could be forgiving It could be confronting somebody gently. It could be giving of your time and finances for the sake of someone else's good. It could be cleaning. It could be delegating. In my case with my brother, I remember I had to once go to a Penn State football game. And some of you would hear that and be like, oh, that sounds awesome. But not for me. I don't like football. But he went to college there, and he was at a game, and we were going to visit him. And if we wanted to spend time with him, we had to go to the game. And I was like, who likes football? Honestly, who likes football? I see a couple people that like football. Well, you're my brothers and sisters, so I I guess I have to deal with it, right? Anyway, as a brother and sister, sometimes you have to do things or be a part of something that really doesn't jive with you. In the church, not everybody's going to be best friends. That's, that's a fact. It's impossible to be best friends with everybody. Not everybody in your home group is going to be your best friend. But what we, why we call it a home group is because we understand that it's family, right? And it, family doesn't always have the same interests. In fact, they don't always get along. But the solution to when we find ourselves competing or when we find ourselves just frustrated about what we have to do, Jesus' answer is service, Right? So the disciples compete. They talk about who the greatest. Ben made a joke about which home group's better. Um, it happens. People try to compete. People try and get the upper hand. But, but the reality of it is, is that competition isn't the problem. And let me explain. So <clears throat> the disciples have this argument, which one of us is greatest. Obviously, they thought at some point they were already competing. This wasn't like, they didn't just decide, all right, we're going to talk about who the greatest is based on nothing we've done. They obviously, along the way, thought like casting out demons or healing people or sharing the good news to the poor. They obviously thought at some point along the way that those were competitions. They looked at it as a, from a perspective of like, if we do this really well, if we imitate Jesus really well, we'll be in his good graces, and when he reigns, we will be sitting at his right and left hand. That's probably what they thought when they talked about being the greatest. But the problem isn't the competition. It's the fact that they thought that they were already doing things good enough, 
that they could be considered the greatest. You know what that's called? That's called complacency. Complacency is defined in the dictionary as being pleased especially with oneself or one's merit, often without awareness of some potential danger or defect. If you're familiar with the story with the disciples, that describes them perfectly. They constantly think they're doing a good job. But Jesus is like, well, you're missing the point. And they're completely unaware. They're unaware all the time. So the danger, competition's a part of life, but complacency doesn't have to be. We don't have to be um, pleased with ourselves and completely unaware of the areas of our life where we're being defective or areas where we might sin or areas where we're being selfish. Jesus calls even when people that struggle with that, the answer to that is service. The answer is constantly making yourself lower and saying, I'll take on the things that I think I'm too good for or the things that I don't have enough time for. I'll learn to make time for them for the sake of my brothers and sisters and for the sake of God. Why? Because Jesus says that in order to love him, you first have to love your neighbor or your brother and sister who you do see. In order to love God, to grow in love for God, you have to love the neighbor. But I think there's an even greater danger than complacency. And I want to invite you all to open up in your Bibles, which are in the seat back in front of you, which if you don't have one is a gift to you, to Numbers 12, 1 to 15. In the spirit of competition, since I can't compete with you any other way today, I have the biggest Bible. All right? I'm not going to use it because it's really heavy and it would take a while to turn the pages, and I think I just hurt my shoulder actually. Like, no, I'm serious. I have shoulder problems, and that really, I really did it. If anyone knows a chiropractor, be a good brother and sister and help me out. Anyway, whew, Numbers 12. That Bible is huge. How big was that? Like, honestly. I'm going to read in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. <clears throat> so we talked about competition, complacency. There's two more C's. Buckle your seatbelts. Numbers 12, 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. Why do you need to say that twice? I don't know. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. That's not a surprise. God hears everything, right? Now the man Moses was very meek or humble more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant, there's that word again, Moses, He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. For those of you who don't know, Miriam, Aaron, and Moses are brothers and sisters. Scripture tells us this, not in this passage, but elsewhere in Numbers. So this is three siblings, right? And somewhere along the way, I think we've bypassed competition, but we found ourselves seeing Miriam and Aaron Aaron as complacent. They think somehow that 
They're on equal footing. They're pleased with themselves and are completely unaware of their defect. Their defect is what is mentioned in verse 1. They're ridiculing Moses because of his interracial marriage. How unfortunate, how sad that they think that they could judge Moses on the basis of whom he chose to marry. It says that Moses is the most humble man on the face of the earth. And Moses shows why. Many of us would not be able to do what Moses did in this situation. Some of us who are like fiercely loyal to our spouses would, if someone ridiculed them, would probably want to not hold our tongue and would lash out back. But in this situation, Moses is completely confident in who he chose as a spouse and doesn't feel the need to defend her. Not because he doesn't love her, but because he feels there's no need. He's happy with his choice. He finds delight in his wife. Unlike Aaron and Miriam, who are complacent in themselves, but also begin to compare. So the next danger we fall into as brothers and sisters is comparison. See, the thing is, competition is bypassed in this situation because there is no competition. God already chose Moses. There isn't anything Aaron or Miriam can do to get that spot. God chose Moses, competition's off the table. They can still be complacent, they can still think that they're doing a really good job. But where they, where they cross the line is when they start to compare. When they compare Moses' choices, something that they have no real influence in. So what happens? This is the sad part. God afflicts Miriam with leprosy. And what does Moses do? Again, he shows why he's the most humble man. Right? Instead of defending his wife, which he feels there's no need to, instead of defending himself and saying, I'm the chosen leader, he doesn't say anything until Aaron comes to him and says, Moses, will you intercede on our behalf? Will you pray for us to God that he wouldn't afflict us? So Moses prays for his sister and she gets healed. But their story doesn't end there. And if you want to turn there, Numbers 20, eight chapters later, is one of the most unfortunate passages in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It's really sad. And I'm just going to recap it for you. Verse 1, Miriam dies. Moses' sister dies. Verses 2 to 13, the people of Israel complain about water for the second time. God already miraculously provided for them water once. The second time they complain, and they start to argue with Aaron and Moses. And if you're familiar with the story, Moses strikes a rock instead of speaking to a rock in anger, in a fit of rage. And what happens? He ends up getting disqualified from inheriting the promised land. Okay? So, so far, his sister dies. The very next story... He gets disqualified from inheriting the promised land, what he's been leading the Israelites to for many, many years. The next passage, from 14 to 21, they're traveling, Moses and the Israelites and Aaron, along the way, and they come to the land of Edom. And the Edomites prevent the Israelites from passing through their land. So they they cut off a shortcut. Now, if you're familiar with Edom, Edomites are the descendants of Esau. And they prevent the Israelites, the descendants of Jacob, from entering through their land. You might remember Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau, Esau was hunting one day, comes back and is hungry. Jacob sells some soup for Esau's birthright. The next time we see Esau and Jacob interacting, or not even really interacting, 
Jacob deceives his father Isaac into receiving a blessing that was meant for Esau. So here we have the descendants of these people remembering brotherhood, remembering the sibling rivalry, and here we have the Edomites saying, oh, you're the Israelites, uh, you're not going to pass through today. Maybe they're holding against them something that happened years and years before. So what happens? The Israelites have to take this long detour around Edom. Maybe some of us can't relate. Maybe some of us have no idea what it's like to be like held back or prevented by a sibling or even a friend. Maybe some of us just have never encountered a path of resistance. Maybe we've managed to avoid it this long. Maybe we've never had a sibling deter us. See, the thing is, when we do, sometimes we're completely aware that if we just did things the way that we thought they were meant to be done or the way that God's called us to do them, that things would work out better for us and for the other party. Things would work out better for us and our sibling and our brother and sister in Christ if we were obedient, but sometimes we let them deter us. The key is to be faithful to what God told them to do. In this case, there wasn't, they didn't have another solution, so they went around. But for us, it's important to be aware. All right, God, what have you called me to? What are, people, what, what are people preventing me from doing that you've called me to that I'm not even aware of? And how do we start to communicate or how do we start to serve one another so that we can understand where each other is coming from but also how we move forward together? The Israelites weren't able to do that. What happens next? Verse 22 to 29, the chapter ends with Aaron dying. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, they fall apart in this chapter. Two of them die. Moses gets ousted from his promised land. He never gets to receive it. The downside of this message, which hopefully we'll pick back up in the second half, is that siblings are supposed to stick together. But what happens is sometimes when brothers and sisters, even brothers and sisters in Christ, make mistakes or sin on a corporate and sometimes individual level, sometimes the result is that we fall together. Thank God that through Christ we get back up. But sometimes as siblings, what happens is we fall together. And sin or mistakes, it affects sometimes the whole body. So what do we do? We repent of them. Then we forgive. We suffer together. We mourn to get together. We take the title of brothers and sisters seriously. And, and how? How do we lay aside comparison? The reality is, is that what you need to do, what we need to do, when we find ourselves comparing ourselves to other people, is that we end up having to hope for their best. We pray for their best. We serve, but we also hope. It's not just a service that doesn't have something attached to it. It's a service that also hopes for the betterment of the other person, and actually believing that as we serve that other person and they get better, we get better with them. We become more loving. We become transformed. Things for us end up prospering. We pray that they would do better than ourselves even. Because the strengthening of the other strengthens us as a whole if we're in a family, if we treat this as, as togetherness. There's still one more thing I want to talk about as far as a danger, but I want us to turn to the New Testament. And you can turn to Luke 10 if you'd like, verse 38. 
There's another trio of siblings I'd like for us to look at, and they maybe demonstrate life in Christ a little bit better. I want to look at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So in, in the Old Testament, you have Moses and Aaron, two men who are at the forefront of God's call and mission, and Miriam kind of plays this other role. She's not in it too often. In the New Testament, you have Mary and Martha. They're at the forefront. They're mentioned far more than Lazarus. The only time Lazarus is really mentioned is when he's raised from the dead. He's not doing anything. Mary and Martha, though, are the exemplars. They're the women of faith. They demonstrate far more often than the disciples, even though they're mentioned far less, of what it means to follow Christ. So the first time you see them in Luke 10.38, we see Martha and Mary, and it says that Martha is serving, what she's known to do. And Martha, we don't know exactly where she's at on the scale, but in some sense may feel complacent, may feel like she's doing a good job serving. And she's on, teetering on the edge of comparison. She does say, um, Jesus, why don't you have my sister come and help me? But Jesus doesn't let her dwell too much on that. He says, Martha, you're worried about many things, but Mary's choosing the good thing right now. She's resting, spending time in my presence. I'm inviting you to do the same. The cleanup will get done. We'll get it done. But right now, the thing that you should be doing, concerned about, is spending time with me. So they kind of avoid this whole complacency and, and comparison type deal. There isn't really a conflict. Jesus just invites those who read that passage to spend time with them, to make sure they're not so busy in, wor- in being worried, but are actually spending time with them. The next time we see them is in John chapter 11, if you want to turn there. Lazarus is already dead. They send word to Jesus to come to them. They invite Jesus to Bethany. And Jesus, when he arrives, Martha meets him along the way and says this. And maybe you've said this to God before. He said, Lord, if you were here, my brother would not have died. The Lord, if you were here, this wouldn't have happened. If you were really in this, this wouldn't have happened. Sometimes we do that. But here Martha says, Lord, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus tries to explain to her that he is there to resurrect Lazarus. He's there not to keep him dead. He's there to raise him up. But she misunderstands and she says to him, yeah, Jesus, in the last days, you'll raise him up in the kingdom. In the days to come, you'll raise him up. I believe that. But Jesus emphasizes, no, I'm the resurrection and the life in the present. I am the resurrection and the life to my brothers and sisters now. She affirms Jesus as Lord and Savior, but she goes to get Mary. And Mary comes out saying, echoing the same thing. She says, if you were here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus, it says, expresses some type of strong emotion. I'm still not sure which it is. I don't know if he's angry. I don't know if he's just sad. We know that he weeps, but I'm not sure exactly what he's feeling. I can't, even though I'm empathetic, I can't, I'm just not sure. I've never been in a situation similar. But Jesus expresses some type of strong emotion and then raises Lazarus from the dead. He is the hope. There is no comparison because nobody else can do it. Only Jesus can in that situation. Only by the power of Christ, the resurrection power of Christ, can he raise people from the dead. The last time we see Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, though, is six days before Passover. Jesus is in Bethany. Bethany was his favorite place to visit. It must have been. He spent time with those not considered his disciples there often. 
It's important to know that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they aren't part of the 12. But they're Jesus' friends. They're those that he's close to. He enjoyed their friendship. He enjoyed their fellowship. In this case, that home group, they were best friends. Matthew 26 tells us that there was a dinner at Simon the leper's house, probably because it was big enough to hold a dinner, whereas Mary and Martha and Lazarus' houses probably were not. But they're at Simon the leper's. You can, you can either look in Matthew 26 or John 12. And what happens there is really interesting. Because something far worse than competition, complacency, and comparison comes up. But even in the midst of that, that other thing that we'll get to in a second, it shows a family that has learned what it means to follow Christ. How do I mean? Look in John chapter 12, verse 2. I'm going to turn there myself. I'll read starting in verse 1. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. This is just one chapter later. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. It's funny. She's just doing what she usually does, right? The first time we met her, she was serving. Here she is again. She, and this is important for us to know, Jesus gently corrects her in the passage in Luke, but it doesn't stop her from serving. It doesn't change the attitude of her heart. She still wants to be a servant, right? Because she understands the problem wasn't in the serving. It was in the worrying. It was being too concerned, comparing what everybody else was doing. Martha served. Then you have Lazarus, who doesn't do a whole lot, but it says this, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Lazarus understands from his resurrection experience, but also probably from his death experience, that the afterlife consists of us spending time with Jesus. That that's what it's all about. That's what this life is about. It's loving Jesus. So here he is. What is he doing? Reclining at the table with Jesus. He understands that the present reality of being with Jesus is exactly like the eternal reality of being with Jesus. Because guess what? Lazarus is going to die again. He does. He doesn't live forever. He's not walking the earth right now. But then you get Mary. And this is where it gets really interesting, and this is where it probably becomes hard for some of us, but, but really is meant to. Mary does something that nobody else sees coming. And you're probably familiar with the story, but Mary takes this ointment, this scented perfume ointment thing, and anoints the feet of Jesus and wipes his feet with her hair. It says the house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary goes above and beyond. As far as competition goes, nobody can compete. Because nobody saw this coming. As far as complacency goes, she clearly wasn't complacent. She probably didn't even know why she was doing this. She just felt this overflow of love, this, this emotional drive that made her do this, that said, I want to pour out the most expensive thing I have on Jesus. As far as comparing, the disciples tried. It says in Matthew 26 that they all join in saying, why this waste? In the passage in John, you just have Judas Iscariot. 
It says in verse 4, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. The same passage in Matthew is a little bit kinder. It puts the fault on all the disciples. They're all chiming in saying, why this waste? We don't get it. It's amazing that in that passage, in this passage, not just that the disciples don't get it, but it's the attitude of their heart. It's not the complacency. It's not the competition. It's not the comparison. It's the contempt. It's the belittling of what Mary did. They call it a waste. They call one of the most loving actions ever portrayed by somebody other than Jesus in Scripture. They call it a waste. I don't even get it. And woe to us if we would dare consider somebody else's action motivated by love for Jesus a waste. It's horrifying to even think about that that could be inside of our heart, inside of the believing community's heart. It's possible that we could look at the work of somebody else and say, that's wasteful. God, do not let that be in our heart. Lord, let us love like Mary did. Let us comprehend like Lazarus and Martha did. Let us not give up on serving. Let us not give up on spending time with you. Let us not give up on extravagant displays of love. But Jesus says something awesome in Matthew 26. Other than the fact that that perfume, ointment, says was valued over 300 denarii in scripture. It tells us that the, a denarius was a day's wage. 300 denarii, 300 days wages, that's working for almost a year. A year's worth of work in one moment poured out. Matthew twenty six thirteen says this, and this is what ties it all together. This isn't the fall of us falling together. This is the promise of what extravagant love does as brothers and sisters. It says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Guess who the first people to carry the gospels to the whole world were? Not Mary, Martha, or Lazarus. Not Judas Iscariot because he killed himself. But the rest of the disciples who called it a waste are the ones that carry the gospel and they're repeating the action of this woman. The fact that it's in scripture and it says this, they're repeating the action of Mary of Bethany. The extravagant love of one woman ends up being the motivating factor whenever they preach the good news of the gospel of what Jesus Christ did for them. They cannot forget the moment that Mary of Bethany anointed the feet of Jesus. Why can't they forget it? Because a chapter later in John, Jesus is washing their feet. It's almost like Jesus gets the inspiration from Mary of Bethany. Or maybe the Holy Spirit, God was moving on Mary's heart to love. 
Something that already was in the heart of Jesus. Jesus says, she's doing this to prepare me for my burial. And how many times did we see in the book of Mark when we were going through it that the disciples had no idea Jesus' death was coming? Three times, Jesus says to them, I'm about to die, and they never get it. Mary, who never has the interaction, according to Scripture, with Jesus about his death, is preparing him for his burial. He sees a prophetic act in what Mary's doing. Whether or not she sees it, we don't know. We can only hope she does. I hope I didn't make that baby cry. (laughs) But how do we deal with contempt? I can't imagine what Mary must have felt like as she's doing the most loving thing she could think of in that moment where she's being criticized. But what do you do in that moment? I think you do the only thing you can do. You love anyway. You just, you say, all right, maybe you're right. I don't know. You're making me really sad, but... Um, I'm just going to keep loving. You suck up the pain and the ridicule and whatever else comes with it, and you love anyway. You love your brothers and sisters because you're also called to love your enemies. And sometimes it's hard to tell in the moment which is which. And then hopefully we learn. If we're the ones that have been criticizing and showing contempt, hopefully we learn. Hopefully we learn and start to understand, oh, wow, that really was motivated by love. And then we begin to help each other in loving. We help each other in extravagant displays of love, and we encourage one another, and we're encouraged by the display of love. If the worship team could please come forward. I want us to think about this idea of of family, of brothers and sisters, as, as falling together and rising together. It's important to understand our, our actions and the consequences that they have, the mistakes we might make, decisions we might mis- make corporately or as a family. We end up owning them and bounce back. But it's also important to remember that the testimony of the saints, that our testimonies have become a part of the good news of the gospel. The fact that Jesus has saved us is now a part of that testimony. That we learn to honor that amongst one another. That we learn to see in one another what Jesus has done. His display of love in us. And now how we are going to respond. How do we start to carry a message? How do we start to show people that this love is real? As I said, the same disciples who once called it a waste end up understanding that it was actually a great display of love. They would proclaim the good news of salvation, but also the good news of love that comes alive within us when we and others extravagantly love Jesus. They proclaim that even though you might not see it yet, that the love that is within us, the love that has consumed us by the death of Christ and His resurrection, that love will be ever-present within you. I want to close with one more verse from John 13, 35. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he makes them this promise that I still have yet to fully see in action but I'm believing for it says this by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another it's not even talking about those outside of the church 
although that's important, although we have to love those outside, but he, he's always saying, you have to love those closest to you, the ones who might be invited to hurt you the most, your brothers and sisters. The love that you have for them will be a display. The fact that Mary didn't agree with them and say, you're right, this is a waste. I don't know what I was thinking. The fact that she kept on doing and then end up demonstrating extravagant love and then they end up carrying that message of what she did. We love one another not just by serving one another, but by proclaiming what, the, what God has done in the other's life, what our brothers and sisters have made it through. By saying things like, oh, I know so-and-so who got through this. They relied on Jesus. I witnessed it with my own eyes. The testimony of the saints testifies to what Jesus has done. Jesus displays extravagant love for his brothers and sisters. He reconciles us to God. Amen.